0: Well, hey, finish this sentence for me, all right? This is going to hurt me. Yeah. Can we be honest? That statement is only made when the, when the spanking was not fully committed to. Amen? Like if someone says that at the end, right, then you're you've dishonest. That's a lie that parents have been telling since the beginning of time. Uh, but what is true is that for a parent, there are fewer things that hurt worse than to see your children hurting. Am I right? Like, you can mess with me, and you can do whatever you want, but you mess with my kids, and that's a different level of hurt. Uh, For the past several weeks, uh, we've been in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians, and what we've learned is that the Apostle Paul has been a spiritual father to these Corinthian believers, and they're struggling, and so in their struggle, uh, he's not just an evangelist that Went to town, won people to Christ, planted this church, and then moved on to the next place because he has deep affection for these people. Uh, They're struggling word gets to Paul, and he says, hey, I'm going to write some words of uh, correction, words of encouragement, words of admonishment back to you in these letters because uh, you're struggling, and it hurts me as your spiritual father in the ministry. And so here's what we've all experienced firsthand. To care deeply about someone is to uh, engage in a mixture of comforting and correcting, encouragement and uh, admonishment. And here's why. If you love someone, you do what's best for them, not what's easiest for you. The very definition of love is the willing to self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else. And so Paul uh, finds himself in that exact situation in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn with me there this morning in your Bibles or your devices. Several years ago, a couple came to me. They uh, used to attend our church, and uh, they were attending here, but then they were attending another church on a regular basis. And uh, they were coming. They said, we're not sure which church we should land at, and we've come here long enough. What we know about you is that you're honest, and so uh, we know that you will be honest with us whether what church we should attend, even though you're the pastor at this church. And I said, I will. And I said, but just remember, whatever choice you make, we do offer online giving, all right? I just kind of worked that in there real quick. Now, in all seriousness, when I was talking through that with them, I said, hey, that's a good question. I will be honest with you. And I said, when you're evaluating a church, uh, one of the first things I asked them, I said, hey, in the dozens and dozens and literally dozens of sermons that you've heard at that church, I said, have you ever heard them talk about or teach about or call people to Repentance. And this is just my opinion, so uh, you can receive it accordingly. Uh, But I would argue that one of the differences between a biblically driven church and a shallow seeker driven church is the teaching on and calling people to uh, repentance. It's easy to tell people to add Jesus into your life and He'll make your life better. It's quite a different thing to call someone to lay aside sinful patterns of living in order to truly follow Jesus. But make no mistake— Repentance is a central theme in the Bible, and the Christian life should be a lifestyle of repentance. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 may be the strongest passage on repentance in the entire New Testament. So let's look together at verses 2 through 11 this morning. Beginning verse 2, Paul writes, and this is the third time he said this in just a short uh, period of time. He says, make room in your hearts for us. For we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within in the most hope-filled words in all the Bible, these two little words, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Verse 8, for even when I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what Indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, the honest truth this morning is that when we talk about repentance, and I say I'm going to preach a sermon on repentance, the text is dealing with repentance. If we're honest this morning, uh, that word has a negative. Connotation does it not? It kind of stirs up imagery of hellfire and brimstone and yelling at people, those kinds of things. But here's what else we have to be honest about: the call to repentance is all over the Bible. That this is not a cursory mention here in Second Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, listen to this overview of the scripture: repentance was the absolute preaching and message of the Old Testament. Every Old Testament prophet was preaching a message of warning to idolatrous Israel and saying, hey, repent, repent over and over. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea preached the word, repent. The same message was preached over and over. Why? Because repentance is the funnel through which God's grace flows through. And he's saying, hey, if you'll repent and turn from your idolatrous ways, God will forgive you and there'll be times of refreshing. But the refreshing does not come apart from heeding our warnings about repentance. That was the message of the prophets. What about the New Testament? How about John the Baptist? What was his message? Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What about the disciples? Mark six twelve says they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Luke chapter 15 verse 7 says, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. How about in the early church? Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost, the church's birth, 3,000 people are saved. And You're thinking, wow, what kind of message was that that they preached that 3000 people gave their lives to Christ and it was a message of repentance. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 and 20 says this, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter 17 verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere To repent, You may be saying, hey, that was the message of the prophets, and that may be the message of the apostles, but I I just don't know that's the heart of Jesus. Right? Like when we think of Jesus, we like the eight-pound, six-ounce infant baby Jesus. Amen? The one who's kind and cuddly and put on our Christmas cards. I don't know if that's the heart of Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. Well, listen to what the Scripture says. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore repent, Jesus said. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So here's what we've learned there in that little two-minute overview. Repentance is a central theme of the Bible and a central message that all of the scriptures are preaching about and so even though there's a negative connotation paul says hey i'm writing a letter and we read down in the middle of that letter he says i know that some of what i just said was hard for you to hear because like i'm a spiritual father that bothers me that it bothered you but what did he say on the front end in verse four he said my heart is overflowing with joy now here's a place in scripture where you should be very thankful that I am not the Apostle Paul, all right? Because if I was the Apostle Paul, I would have done washed my hands of these Corinthian believers, right? They had uh, ascribed wrong motives to him. Verses 2 and 3, he's once again telling them, hey, would you make room in your hearts for me? After all that I've done, right? In verse 3, he says, you know, I, I want to prove myself. There's nothing ill about my intentions. They've been accusing him again. Uh, they had pledged their allegiance to all these false teachers known as the super apostles. Listen, here, here's the honest truth. If I were the author of 2 Corinthians, it would be the shortest book in the Bible because here's what it would read. Hey, you're dead to me. That's it, right? Any questions? Not Paul. My my heart is bursting with joy, is what he says in verse four. His heart is not dead to these people. His uh, heart is bursting with joy despite physical exhaustion. Verse five and uh, them questioning his character, false accusations in verse three. And and when we hear that, this is one of those places in the Bible we think, well, Paul's like he's some kind of super Christian. Like, I could never, after all they've done, betray all that false accusation, after all he'd done for them, i just wash my hands of them. But listen, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't give testimony of, look how great I am. Look at what a Christian I am. Paul tells you exactly how does his heart still beat for these people? How is he overflowing with joy despite writing a letter of correction? He tells you right in the text. He said, here's how I keep loving these people despite all these false accusations. First, uh, we see he gives testimony of God's comfort in the form of a faithful friend at just the right moment in verse 6. Who does he talk about in verse 6? He talks about Titus and how God used him at a right moment to encourage and refresh Paul. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. Don't you doubt the power of encouragement in someone else's life. One of the greatest Christians ever walked the planet, the Apostle Paul, said, hey, I was afflicted, you falsely accused me, verse 5, verse 3, but God in his providence sent me some times of refreshment in the form of a faithful friend named Titus, verse 6. That's why Proverbs says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It is beautiful and has tremendous Value. But then also, he says, uh, here's why his heart's still tender toward these people. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, For even though I grieve you with my letter, uh, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you're grieved, but because you were grieved into uh, repenting. And so, so, here's what Paul's saying. He said, Hey, I want to share some things with you. And these things are going to be hard to hear, and it hurts me that it's going to hurt you to receive these things, but it hurts me only for a little bit. I love what he says there, hey, I was sorry, but I'm not really sorry, right? Because he knows that God's going to use his words of correction as a catalyst into uh, repentance. So here's a little side note. You can write this down somewhere. Love is not the absence of difficult conversations. That's why the book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, But even in those difficult conversations, there is a, I wish I didn't have to say these things from Paul because I love you so much. He's not excited to offer admonishment and neither will you and I be if our motive is love. You ever been around a Christian who's maybe just a little bit too excited to offer a word of admonishment or correction to you? Like, hey, I hate to share this with you. They've got a huge smile on their face. and You're thinking, I'm thinking you're not hating this right now, right? That's not Paul. Paul says, I hate to, this breaks my heart to write this letter. But my grief is only for a little bit because I know these are the words that that you need to hear so that you can move on towards repentance and all that God will do uh, in your life through that. And so, despite the negative connotation, uh, we know that repentance And calling people to repentance can be an occasion for joy, verse 4, because repentance is what leads to growth and change in other people's lives. And we know the idea of repentance is a prominent theme all throughout Scripture from cover to cover. So what actually is repentance? You can write this down or just try and memorize it or whatever, right? Repentance is this. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. The word mind is the same word as heart in Scripture. It's the same idea as the inner man. Those are all interchangeable themes in Scripture. And so when a true change of mind or a change of heart takes place, that will always lead to a change of behavior. Here's why. Because Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says this. Above all else, guard your heart, inner man, mind. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because it determines the course of your life. And so in other words, if you truly experience a change of heart, it will in turn determine the course of your life. A change of heart, true change of heart, will always lead to a change of behavior. Repentance is turning away from sin and self-righteousness and turning towards Jesus Christ. And I believe this. I believe there are actual measurable things of genuine repentance, measurable evidences of genuine repentance in the Bible speaks directly to that listen to these verses Acts chapter 26 verse 20 I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds what's he say he's saying hey if there really has been a change of heart about this sin there will be a change in their life as evidence in their deeds Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 8 says this, Jesus challenged his hearers. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so fruit is just observable actions and attitudes uh, in the Christian life. And so Jesus said, hey, you should have observable attitudes and action that that are consistent with a testimony of repentance. So repentance is the root that I can't see, but if the heart is repentant, there'll be visible fruit on the tree. So there's visible fruit on the tree. What type of fruit are we looking for when it comes to uh, repentance? Let me just say this before we get into the text a little deeper this morning. This is not, hear me this morning, this is not a checklist for you to write down so that you can gauge the repentance level of someone else primarily. This is not one of those messages where you hear and go, oh man, I know someone that needs to hear that. I do too, me. Me. This is God's word for you and I today. So that's the primary application is not to be listening and go, man, I know someone who needs to come to repentance. The primary application is this is a message for me and my own heart. But I will say this secondarily, these marks of repentance will serve as guardrails as to whether or not you should reconcile or restore a relationship that's been broken by sin. Now, you never withhold forgiveness, And all that means, but these are guardrails or things to be looking for. Is it wise to restore this relationship or reconcile this relationship? Now, here's the good news, all right? All that totally free. Totally free, right? And I'm just now getting charged up a little bit, so fasten your seatbelts, all right? So what are the marks of genuine repentance according to this passage? I want to see three things in the text this morning. Number one, there'll be the evidence of godly regret. We have a church culture where uh, in teaching where there's little appetite in American church culture for anything that's not inherently practical, anything that's not overly positive. It's not going to be practical, it's not going to be positive. Uh, I'm not really excited to hear that sometimes in American church culture. But while we work hard here uh, at being practical, we also work hard at teaching what the text says, whether it's a word of encouragement or it's a word of admonishment. And right off the bat, in verse 9, he describes, uh, uses the terms grief and sorrow. Now, if we're honest, if you came up and said, hey, how are you doing this morning? My life is filled with grief, right? If someone says, that's great, glad to hear it. What you know is they're not paying attention, right? Those words don't have a happy or positive connotation, but even there's not a Happier positive connotation, the words grief or sorrow, uh, they are godly in nature, according to verse 9. Here's why in repentance, there is a godly grief or a sorrow, ultimately, because we know that we have disappointed the Lord in our life. That's why it says in verse 9, He says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And so grief or loss is a part of the process of repentance, even though it's not a positive thought. It is a biblical thought because ultimately what I know is that there's been a loss of intimacy with the Lord Jesus in my patterns of sin. But when you study the Scripture, the other thing that you notice about repentance is this. There's another word that also is not popular, but it also is biblical when it comes to the teaching of repentance. And it is the idea of guilt. There is a good guilt and there is a false guilt. But the reality is the Bible says this. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Let me give you an old school word for the word guilt, all right? It's what the old timers used to talk about. Anybody remember the the word conviction in church? Anybody raise your hand and give testimony to that? Right? And so what's happened is this, this holy spirit wrought conviction which is an act of god's mercy because god says hey i see you in your sin and i love you too much to leave you in your sin so through the convicting power of the holy spirit i'm gonna give you motivation to repent and walk away from that sin and what's happened is we've taken that good gift of god's mercy called conviction and we've put it over in the category said guilt and what we said in our church is this don't ever make anybody feel guilty listen If you're living in patterns of unrepentant sin week after week and you never feel guilty coming to the house of God, there's either something wrong with the preacher or something wrong with you, amen? So he says there is this godly grief or godly sorrow. We know that guilt uh, is a process of the part of repentance called uh, conviction. Let me just add some clarity as well. There is a false guilt to be aware of in the Christian journey. And false guilt is just that constant, low-grade undercurrent that you just can't seem to shake. It's that little voice saying, you're not doing enough. Shame says, you'll never be enough because shame is about identity. Guilt is about performance. Anybody ever run into Mr. Guilt and his cousin, Mr. Shame? You're not sure what you should feel guilty about you're not sure of any patterns of unrepentant sin in your life that are ongoing and habitual. Again, just these patterns. But for whatever reason, you just feel guilty. This this low hum in the background of your soul, this undercurrent that always says, oh, there's just something I should be doing more. Now, how do you know the difference between godly guilt and false guilt? So here's very clear. Listen to this. The purpose of godly guilt is to facilitate repentance away from specific sin. Repentance is not general, it is specific. And so, false guilt's just this general sense that uh, I'm not doing enough to earn God's grace. Listen, here's the news flash there's nobody in the room doing enough to earn God's grace. That's why it's defined as unmerited favor. And so, he says, Hey, there's this godly sorrow in your lives. I hated writing those words because. I knew what they would sound like and I love you, but it produced, God used it. I was only sorry for a little bit because God used it to produce a sorrow in you that was, why not positive, it was a godly sorrow because it led to repentance. Now, here's the reality. Everybody can experience a level of guilt, right? You don't have to be a Christian to feel guilty about something. And so How do we distinguish between godly grief and worldly grief or regret? Verses 9 and 10 draw a clear distinction where he describes this godly grief that led to repentance, but then he gives a contrast in verse 10 of worldly grief. The term godly grief is definition means this. It literally means according to God. According to God. In verse 10, when he describes worldly grief, it's not the absence of grief, but it's a different kind of grief. Look at verse 10, what's he say? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, let me help you understand the difference between these two. Godly grief or godly sorrow, godly regret, whatever term you want to use in there, is this. You feel bad about something, some sin pattern you had, not ultimately because you sinned against God, but because uh, your sin has painful consequences. One theologian used this big term and he said, this, These are crocodile tears. I'm not ultimately sorry that I've sinned against God in worldly sorrow. What I'm sorry is that I got caught. What I'm sorry is that I've been humiliated. What I'm sorry about, there's these consequences that are going on, that's the definition or description of worldly sorrow. Uh, the focus of godly regret or godly sorrow is always God. And godly sorrow, what I'm grieved about, what that loss is about, is because I know that I've disappointed God, but the focus of worldly regret is me. I'm suffering. I'm humiliated. I'm embarrassed. Worldly grief does not change your character. And so eventually you return to the same old sin patterns once your embarrassment has worn off you ever heard somebody say this to you and you're like I'm not totally convinced hey I'm really sorry that I said that or did that you've been a good friend to me and you've walked with me and and I did this or I said that and and I just want to let you know that I'm sorry and there's a part of you that you're like I'm not totally sure that you're sorry well how do you know if that person's really sorry listen truth and time go hand in hand and over the course of time, their sorrow, whether it's worldly sorrow, in other words, I'm sorry that now there's this awkwardness in our friendship, uh, will d- differentiate itself from godly sorrow, which says, "Not only am I grieved that I hurt you, I'm grieved that I hurt God, and I'm unwilling to return to those sinful patterns, not because I'm embarrassed, but because I' grieved that I hurt the Lord." And so he gives this distinction. Verse 11, he continues to drive the th- thought home. Go look at verse 11. He said, see what earnest or diligence in some of your translations, this godly grief has produced uh, in you. He also used the word, uh, what indignation. What's he describing? That's righteous indignation is anger uh, over sin and repulsion, that the shame that it's brought on Christ uh, in His church and in a godly sorrow, the thing that was once attractive to me is now repulsive to me. The thing that once tempted me, that I gave into, he now says, "I look at that, and there's an indignation that's no longer attractive. That repulses me in repentance," is what he's describing. And so if you want to know, am I moving towards genuine repentance, which will lead to real change, ask yourself this simple question: Which is more painful to me? My sin or its consequences? Which grieves me more, than I disappointed Christ or that I embarrassed myself accompanied by unpleasant circumstances? That is the fundamental question everybody has to ask when it comes to the issue of repentance. Is it worldly sorrow, right? Unlikely consequences, or is it godly sorrow that I'm grieved, that I've suffered a loss of intimacy in my relationship with Christ? So true repentance is not only marked by godly sorrow or godly regret, godly grief, whatever term you want to use there, it's also marked by, we see in the text here, uh, an attempt to make it right. Uh, Repentance without restitution is not repentance uh, at all. If you've sinned against someone and never made an attempt to make it right, uh, but claim to be repentant about that sin, then listen, the only person you're fooling is yourself. You may have confessed it because it felt good to get that off your chest. You may have, all that guilt had been weighing down on you and you just said, I just got to confess this and oh, I feel so much better. But if there's no heart change about what you did and there's no attempt to make restitution or reconcile that relationship that was fractured because of your sin, then listen, you may have fooled everyone else, but you certainly haven't fooled the Lord. You have no control over how people receive it, but true repentance pursues restitution. That's why the Bible says this. I believe it's in the book of Romans off the top of my head, so I could totally be wrong. The Bible says this, so as much as it's possible with you, live at peace with all men. In other words, sometimes it's not all possible with you. You, you make restitution or attempt to make restitution. The other person says, hey, I'm not interested in that or I'm not ready for that or, or I want to see the fruit of repentance play out in your life over a period of time to see if this is a wise relationship to reconcile, because I don't know, this may be godly sorrow, it may be worldly sorrow. But there's a pursuit of reconciliation and restitution. Look at the end of verse 11. What does he say? He says, there is an eagerness to clear yourselves. What's he mean there? What he's saying is this, there is an eagerness for you to clear up the offense that caused this separation. There's not just a, hey, I'm sorry. He says, no, no, there's an eagerness to clear yourselves. It is the energetic pursuit of fixing the fallout of my sin. One commentator described this. He said, this is an aggressive pursuit of holiness. Another word for holiness is the term practical righteousness and the overflow of getting right with God is an attempt to make it right with other people. Verse 11 also used the word uh, vindication. That's the desire to see justice no matter what it costs me. In other words, yes, to confess this and reconcile this relationship and admit that I was wrong and I was sinful in this, it's going to cost me something. It may cost me my reputation, it may cost me uh, you know, my pride or these kinds of things, but there is a desire to see vindication that justice over my sin should take place even if it costs me deeply. Zacchaeus is the poster boy for this. Anybody remember that hymn of the faith? What do we know about Zacchaeus. So we. I just want a theological answer. I look out. And I see a bunch of this. We we little men. Right. Well, here's what else we know about Zacchaeus, besides this. As a tax collector, he had cheated people. You ever wonder why tax collectors are hated, and still hated? Amen. Come on, it's tax season. Somebody say amen. (laughs) It's because they were betraying their own people. They're working for the Romans and collecting taxes. While at the same time, there's a family allegiance to these people. And so they just, they couldn't stand these people. And they're often dishonest in there. And so Zacchaeus was a tax collector that had cheated people. And when he came to the place of repentance, basically what he says in a paraphrase is this, I've got to give this money back. It doesn't belong to me. In other words, it's not enough to confess and say, yes, I've cheated people, and yes, I've betrayed my own people, and yes, I've you know, fudged the numbers so I could put a little more in my pocket. That's not enough to confess those things. He says, I've got to give the money back and make it right. Why? Because repentance always pursues restitution and reconciliation. And so if someone has offended you, and sinned against you, and they've genuinely confessed, and it appears over time there's genuine repentance, and you say, hey, I've forgiven that person, but I'll never talk to them again. The only person you're lying to is yourself. And so Paul commends the Corinthians, there is an eagerness to clear yourselves of these sinful patterns to make right what you did wrong. So not only does repentance involve godly regret, not only does it involve an attempt to make it right, but thirdly, what we see in this passage is this, is that repentance involves a turning back towards Christ. In verse 11, Paul lists some clear, observable fruit that will be present in the life of a truly repentant heart. Go back to verse 11 and look what he says there. In verse 11 he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation over your sin. What fear, that's the fear of disappointing the Lord again. What longing. What zeal. What punishment at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter, and so what's Paul saying is, hey, at one point in time, before I wrote these words and God used these hurtful words to facilitate repentance in your life, you were totally content to be in your sin. But now, there's observable fruit in your life. Now there's the fear of the Lord again in your life. Now there's a longing or a desire to please the Lord. There's a zeal to reconcile relationships. And so, what is repentance? It's not just feeling bad about past sin on the inside, it's true change that will lead to change and show up on the outside. So that's what he's saying in verse 13. He's saying no one can deny the fruit of your life and what's taken place. And so while I was sorry to write that, I'm not sorry because God used these words to facilitate a huge change in your life and everyone can see it according to verse 11. And so... This is incredibly important, so I want you to listen. Repentance is not just stopping your sin. If repentance was only about stopping your sin or stop whatever particular sin or patterns of sin in your life, listen, that's moralism. You don't need Jesus for that repentance is not just about stopping your sin although it's turning away from sin and self-righteousness listen but it doesn't stop there because if we stop there a person could stop sinning whatever that sin is fill in the blank and never commit that sin again and still not wake up on the other side of eternity in heaven why? because Christ didn't die for moral behavior Christ died to rescue and redeem and transform sinful hearts and so repentance is marked not just by stopping your sin, but a real pursuit of Jesus. Paul says, man, you went from this and you didn't care, so I would write this letter and I'm kind of sorry, but I'm not really sorry, right? Because you need to hear it. But now, look at your zeal and earnestness, pursuing righteousness in Jesus Christ. An unknown author wrote, there is a, Radical distinction between natural regret and God given repentance. The flesh, that's the sinful part of us, the flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, and be ashamed of itself. However, this sort of disgust with past actions can quickly be shrugged off, and the individual can soon go back to his old wicked ways. But in true repentance, the person doesn't just shrug off those things. They're now zealous for Jesus Christ. Of the marks of true repentance described in verse 11, here's the great part. When that happens, there'll be a renewing of joy and the restoration of fellowship with the Lord. When repentance happens, what he's saying is now All this sin and and now shame has now been replaced by zeal and a longing to live in a walk with Jesus Christ. And so what happens is, uh, it's what David meant in Psalm 51, 12, that great psalm of confession. And David said this, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now here's why we would preach on something that many churches would just skip over because again, repentance has a negative connotation. Here's why. Let me show you how a church that won't preach on repentance is robbing people spiritually. Go back to verse 10. What does he say in verse 10? For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Genuine repentance frees me from ongoing regret. Regret. Who wouldn't preach that? What he's saying here is I'm so excited about my renewed walk in intimacy with Jesus Christ that's showing up in my life, verse 11, that I'm no longer continuing in past sin or focusing on past sin. Why? Because I've already repented of it, and now I can walk in the freedom and newness of Jesus Christ. I don't have to live there in my sin anymore. And the difference between the guilt and the shame of sin... And a lack of regret, what's the bridge between those two? It is a bridge of repentance. One last time, look at this phrase in verse 8. I'm going to go over a couple minutes this morning. Is that okay? Totally rhetorical, all right? He says, I see the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Why? Because eventually that repentance, that thing that was hard to hear, it gave way to joy in their lives. Now, here's the question, and then we're done. If all this is available to someone, then why in the world would anyone continue in sin instead of repenting of it? Here's been my experience it's because they're unsure how God would respond to them if they did. Let me tell you something. I don't have to wonder how God would respond because he's already written down in Scripture. Listen to this. When he, the prodigal son, finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as the hired servant. And so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick! Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the fatted calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. And he was lost. now he's found. And listen how one translation closes that out. So the party began. That's what's waiting. On the other side of repentance. And so I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. And we're going to do something that We only do once or twice a year. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing. And I'm going to invite you to come to the altar. There's nothing magical about the front of the room. But maybe you just want to get down on your knees. As a posture of humility as a display of a repentant heart this morning. Maybe you want to come and pray for someone who's a prodigal. You want the Lord to grant them repentance. I'll be here at the front. Pastor Connie will be here. Pastor Michael. And so if we can pray with you, we'll be here to pray with you. If you just want to come and pray by yourself, you're welcome to come pray. Again, there's nothing magic about the front of the room. We're going to come and pray. Father, Do in our hearts what only you can do. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.